0: Hello, my name is Michael Sanders and you are listening to the Camera Channel Podcast. If there's one genre of film and television where the talent behind the camera rightfully gets as much recognition as the talent in front, it's wildlife programming. My four guests today are all part of that elite group of wildlife cameramen and women whose travels and exploits have taken them to every corner of the planet. Whatever the terrain, from mountains to deserts, ice caps to rainforests, You name it, they've been there. Between them, they have been part of the teams that have produced the stunning images that we've all gulped at in programmes like Life on Earth and Living Planet. Programmes that all came out of a BBC outpost 200 miles to the west of London, the infamous Natural History Unit based in Bristol. Before we discuss the trials and tribulations of filming wildlife, my four guests each gave me a quick overview of how they got to where they are.
1: Hi, uh, I'm Justine Evans and I'm a wildlife camerawoman. I really was into animals, wildlife, nature. I grew up in the road leading into Richmond Park in London and I used to spend all my time in there looking for um, badgers at night. I'd be up there on my own at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. Looking at what was around and listening to the owls and so on, um, I had a real passion for tigers. and And when I finished my A levels, I went off travelling to India because I just wanted to go to the national parks and see if I could see a tiger. And then sort of made me think about what I could do for a living, which would involve wildlife. The sort of um, camera side of it came along around that period, I guess. And um, and then I sort of thought, well, you know, getting a film school training would be a great way to go. I went to Bournemouth Film School. While I was on the course, actually, I wrote to um, some um, cameramen um, who were specialising in um, wildlife filming at the time. And one of them actually wrote back and said that they were looking for an assistant. So I managed to get a camera assisting position before I even left film school, which was fantastic. And after that... I did some work with the RSPB I made a couple of campaign films with them and and then a longer film which gave me some material to to show and then I got um, an amazing opportunity with Oxford scientific films which was being run by sean morris at the time who was a real institution he's a fantastic man and um he gave me a big break which was working on a film on Barrow, colorado island in panama it was basically just go there for months and film neotropical wildlife <laughs> and um Thing I learnt how to climb trees there and film in the canopy, use various grip, film macro um, and long lens. I just did everything. So that was a that was a huge step for me.
2: Hi, I'm Robin Smith and uh, I'm uh, a wildlife cameraman. I came to it a little bit by accident, really. I, I guess I had another career, I suppose, for want of a better word, for about ten years teaching in in outdoor centres. Um, And my girlfriend at the time decided, unbeknown to me, that she was going to apply on my behalf for a place on a a fairly new BSc honours degree in biological imaging, uh, which was being run at Derby University. And the first I knew about this was when I got a letter inviting me for for an interview, which I wasn't massively keen on the idea at the time, being a student. So quite rightly, she said, well, if you're not going to go to this interview, at least phone them up and tell them that you're not going to show so I, I called them to say thanks, but no thanks. And um, a gentleman called Geoffrey Boswell answered the phone. Um, so Geoffrey was a very long-standing producer with the BBC Natural History Unit. He'd founded things like Johnny Morris's Animal Magic. And um, I think he'd been a producer on Blue Peter and lots of He was a bit of an institution. Geoffrey um, had retired from the BBC and, and was teaching and lecturing on this new degree course. Um, and he was he was a bit of a character, really. And he he sort of picked up the phone and, and completely talked me around into into just going and meeting them um, and then thought, well, actually, do you know what? This might actually be something that I'm interested in in doing. I'd always been keen on photography, just being in the outdoors. So alongside the biology, you could specialize as either a, a filmmaker, an illustrator um, or a photographer. And I just got so by the by the filmmaking side of the course and then there was a little kind of niche of people that went into wildlife photography and and natural history filmmaking and there's a number of people sort of peppered through the industry even now that sort of came through that course off the back of that I sort of made some connections and got um, a little bit of assisting work like Justine I assisted and then I guess my big break came when I was offered a job working for Survival Anglia on a film that they were making about killer whales up in the Bering Sea. And I ended up, partly, I guess, because of my um, outdoors background, I was quite an experienced sailor. Um, I was also a diver. Um, and that sort of got me a foot in the in the door with this fairly epic film project that Survival Anglia were making at the time. And I ended up being involved with that for about ten months. I was away living on this this yacht and sailing pretty much halfway around the world filming whales. So that was yeah, that was my first kind of kind of big break. And I, I sometimes wonder if if Jeffrey hadn't picked up that phone, quite what would have happened.
3: Hi, I'm Simon Glanville. I'm a wildlife cameraman. I had a similarly circuitous route, I guess. Um, I did do a zoology degree, so I guess that's one of the sort of first principles that a lot of people start from. But um, prior to that, I'd sort of spent most of my childhood drawing animals and, and later in my teenage years getting interested in photography. But when I finished university, I just wasn't really sure what I was doing and I ended up working in bars for quite a while. So I started writing to people and then my GP, actually, he uh, said that his friend that he went to university with was uh, Peter Parks. He'd left off Oxford Science for Films at that point, set up his own company doing 3D IMAX movies Anyway, so I wrote him a long letter and sent him some photos and he wrote back and said, I'd like to, to meet you. So I went up and I uh, chatted to him and felt very intimidated and um, showed him some terrible photographs. I thought, oh, they, no, nothing's going to come of that. And then um, I think a couple of months later, he got the opportunity to do some specialist IMAX photography for a film about Venezuela, all, all in his sort of garden shed in Oxford. He asked if I wanted to come and help. So I said, yes, that would be great. Uh, so pretty much from day one, I was... Sort of loading 70 mil IMAX films <laughs> into, the, <laughs> into the magazine and trying to deal with these you know, incredibly complex cameras and feeling very out of my depth. But it sort of mostly went okay and kind of went off into drama, um, in which I stayed for another four or five years as a clap loader and then eventually a focus puller. And then sort of weirdly, I ended up doing a sort of Channel 4 drama and the, uh, the sound man, a man called Adrian Bell, his wife, Linda Bell, was a natural history producer and he said, oh, you should talked to her and I thought oh well nothing's going to come out of that but you know fine I'll, I'll have a word and we did and then she actually asked me to, to do to assist on a natural history documentary about turtles so I went to, to do that and I was like oh wow yeah this is what I want to do this is it <laughs> I'd <forgotten> about it. <laughs> then uh there's a relatively well-known natural history producer called Dave Allen who now runs Passion Pictures it was at the point when things were moving over from film to to HD and uh, he was he'd been asked to do a natural world about mountain gorillas and he was slightly worried about going with a digital camera because he only, he only uses art on his whole career and so they, they, he asked for an assistant to come with him um, so we went out for this eight week project where I sort of assisted and did you know other bits and pieces, jib work and time lapses and things and then we were due to go out for another eight weeks and he just said he'd kind of, sort of lost interest in filming the gorillas because he'd done a few gorilla films before and he said "Oh, do you want to go and do it instead uh, <laughs> and I was like yeah definitely <laughs> so um so then I went out by myself for the following eight weeks to Rwanda and basically finished making the film. So, yeah, I mean, it's all just luck, isn't it, and happenstance and serendipity. But I kind of had this target in mind to become a wildlife cameraman and sort of lost my way a few times. But then I just luckily stumbled across a person who could sort of take me, take me across the line. And that was Dave Allen in the end. And, and, uh, and yeah, you're today. Hi, I'm Sue Gibson and I am a wildlife cameraman.
4: I I was always interested in animals from a young age and actually my parents and my brother and sister used to live in Malawi. And so in the family home, there was always these like exotic kind of objects everywhere. So I always had this kind of fascination with kind of wider world sort of stuff, including animals. And it's kind of serendipitous that I ended up in Bristol because... I actually failed my A-levels, what one of them, to go to my first choice university in London. I did a it was sort of a media production course where you could either specialise in, uh, I think it was multimedia, sound or camera. And then when I left, I did the thing where you email hundreds of people. And I was also sort of going down the drama route and, and then realised that actually it wasn't what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was in Bristol and that was where Natural History filmmaking you know was and and why not try and get get into that because I had that passion and so I ended up doing two weeks work experience managed to get in at the BBC natural history unit and so I kind of took a step back from actual camera assisting and camera work to end up uh, working four years on editorial where I did quite a lot of archive shows um, which actually meant that I was looking through a hell of a lot of footage and you know almost learning some camera work in that way, knowing what made a good sequence editorially and all that kind of thing. And I did researching. I even worked in the archive library. I was an assistant producer. And then this round of redundancies came in in 2008. So I thought it's now or never that I, you know, concentrate on actually trying to do camera work. And luckily, Doug Hope, who's a series producer, kind of gave me my first break on Strangely, it was actually a studio show, but it was, it's for kids, but it had like a wildlife theme to it. It was Sam and Mark's Everyday Guide to Dodging Disasters. And then from that, I ended up doing a lot of other kids stuff for Live and Deadly, which is where we took kids out into kind of adventure situations and, and they'd be exploring wildlife and the outdoors. It it was tough going, to be honest. But then trying to move from that into more long lens was tough. And, it, you know, it was kind of, again, as someone said, chicken and egg thing where you can't prove that you can do it until someone gives you a chance. Um, And I think it was just chipping away. So, yeah, it was... I'm finally, hopefully, here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's a real lesson there in all your stories that just how important one key person is and just how important it is to keep up connections
1: one or two key people really give you a, a step up mm. and it's thanks to them giving you a chance or encouraging you or just introducing you to somebody else which you know is 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 not so much luck but it's just them you know trusting you or, or just being kind yeah generous yeah. um that helps you know and it's something to remember isn't it as you get into a, a more a position yourself where you can help other people and you think well you know those moments they're they're pivotal you know and they set you on a whole path and in, in, in a lifetime's career
0: oh absolutely and i think most of us have got someone we can identify with as being pivotal in helping us through our careers now we're recording this in april 2020 uh, during the midst of the coronavirus lockdown, which is fortuitous for me, as it means you're actually all in the country. And uh, Simon, I know you were meant to be somewhere right now. Where should you be?
3: Uh, I'm supposed to be in Ecuador filming a poison dart frog. I was just leave on the Monday, I think Monday the 16th, and I think on the 15th Nat Geo, who um who was for, just put a blanket ban on every single production that was that was happening. So um, we were, in a way, lucky because we were cancelled before we left. I know one other crew on the same project had left for Costa Rica the previous day and pretty much landed at the airport to receive the news and had to turn around, get back on the plane and come back to the UK again.
0: That must be really frustrating because I suspect these things take months to plan.
3: It's kind of It can be a very short period of time. You can sort of, to a degree, not even know much about it at all and just go out there and wing it to the complete opposite end of the spectrum where... I've had producers kind of start talking about a shoot up to a year in advance, um, partly to secure your time because it's getting, with all these big um, commissioners now, increasingly competitive to get wildlife camera people, you know, onto a particular shoot. But um, so I think, you know, they're kind of trying to secure people as early as possible, but then inevitably the conversation begins about the project. Um, but I'd say the, the vast majority of the time is probably spent trying to work out whether what they want to do is doable. And if it is like, you know, what kind of equipment you can use to try and solve the problems that that are inherent in the ambitions that the producers have. Um, So yeah, a lot of it is just trying to find novel or unusual pieces of equipment um, to solve problems or repurposing other bits of equipment to try and make them, you know, usable in a a filming situation. and then the rest of it in a way which is more more fun, I guess, is trying to work out how to do it differently, you know, the story, because often these stories are have been done before or elements of them been have been done before. And so trying to sort of find new ways of telling the story. Um I really like work some producers you work with, you know, really have quite a sort of almost like a you know, cinematic sense. And I'll you know, we'll get shot lists with feature film kind of um references and like you know particular styles of shots from a like darren aronofsky film that you want to try and you know that, that kind of thing i really like so it's really nice to engage with that and try and work out you know kind of visual style for a natural stream sequence you know because it's quite you know, often you're just fundamentally filming animals which you know i think it, you know if you're in a hide sometimes i think you know really it's kind of a combination of kind of motor skills and decision making and um sometimes you
4: asleep. <laughs> asleep, yeah. I,
3: mean, I think you know. Sometimes it's nice to you know. Sometimes you, like like with this this frog project, you know, obviously you're not filming that from a hide, so you and you'll kind of you know be able to be able to manipulate the situation a bit more, and you know decide on your decide on the habitat you're working in, and you know you know the backgrounds to a degree, so you get more input in terms of like the look that you're trying to generate. So to a degree, I, I enjoy that aspect.
0: Presumably, these kind of shoots live and die by how good the planning and the research is, though.
4: I've been on a couple of shoots where. There's been a little bit of suspect research and, you know, you end up being in a place where people go, oh, you should have been here last month. That's what happens. <laughs> so um, that kind of planning and, and because you're not always involved and at those stages, you're not in the office. Sometimes you just do feel like you've dropped, dropped in a bit. And um, and then you, there's a slow realisation as, as you find certain questions haven't been asked. So therefore you do spend eight days in a hide not so anything <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think Sue's dead right. And there's no substitute really for good local information, really. I mean, you can get as much information as you can by, you know, sort of Google and, and various other things um, and, and researchers, you know, in the sort of production office. But actually talking to people on the ground, and I've been in lots of situations where we've put all our eggs in one basket and you'll speak to one local person and say, no, 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 this doesn't happen here. You need to be here or, you know, mm-hmm. it happened last week over there. And and, and that, that local information From scientists or 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 villagers or people that are there, you know, and live there. I think that's priceless, really, and that's probably the best use of any any prep. Getting a recce where somebody actually goes out and talks to people on the ground, I think, is probably the, the best preparation that that could be done.
3: It's the local people more than anything. I think scientists can definitely be super useful, but I've definitely had occasions with scientists where they're sort of rigidly adhering to a particular sense of what the animals do, and um, you know, they they have these particular kind of, you know, behavioral viewing windows that they, you know, maintain, also have the same data. I mean, recently I did a shoot for filming um, horseshoe crabs, and we arrived in Delaware, and um, we spoke to the local scientists and they said, look, it's just a really bad year, there's no crabs at all, you know, we've hardly seen any, we've been going out and doing our transects, and there's like one or two, three or four, you know, it's it's not a mass spawning event at all, you know, I'm really sorry, but you kind of wasted your time. And I was like, oh, well, we'll just go down a few hours beforehand. And they said, well, there's not really any point because it happened to high tide. I was like, well, we'll just see. and Maybe we'll get some shots of other things. We went down the first day, like about half an hour before high tide. There were just heaving throngs of horseshoe crabs all the way down the beach. I mean, horseshoe crabs, as far as I could see, we shot you know, the vast majority of the sequence in this first half an hour period. And then as they all sort of, sort of slipped back into the ocean, the scientists then turned up to start doing their transects. And I was like, you should have been here thousands of them. They said, quite rightly, that they can't do that because they've been doing it historically for so many years. You know, they've been doing this science for 60 years or whatever. They have to do their transects at the same time, at the same place, the same period every year in order to maintain consistency in their data. But clearly they weren't getting a, you know, an accurate picture of what was happening with the behaviour because of, because of that sort of adherence to the science.
0: I think it's fair enough to say most of us are jealous of the fact that you get to go to these far off, amazing places that quite often nobody's ever been to before. There is the old adage that getting there is half the fun. Is that really true?
1: Not a lot of fun. No, no. no.
3: no absolutely not.
1: <laughs> it's got a lot harder because of all the you know the restrictions at airports and you know the fluids and liquids and then and the batteries and everything's just very complicated and difficult um I, th- I think the only sort of traveling I've enjoyed is when on expeditions where you end up walking into your locations and you know it's just exciting then because I've worked on a expedition in Burma where we floated everything um on these bamboo rafts that the locals have made up a river and we just trekked up and and it was just being on foot everywhere we went was on foot and just freed ourselves from from um, vehicles and, and any other form of, of transport. And uh, you know it's so rare in life that you get the opportunity to do that. And I remember coming back from that trip thinking, I'm just going to walk everywhere from now on. (laughs) It lasted about two days, (laughs) and uh, yeah, I realised it wasn't particularly practical. But uh, yeah, it's uh, apart from that, yeah, going to airports sucks, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned.
4: Trying to leave countries can be quite
1: difficult too. I I had a
4: shoot. um, We were trying to leave Bangladesh, obviously with the same amount of kit that we came in with, and on the way out, I think our excess baggage we. Got this really friendly guy who ended up only charging us, I think, five hundred pounds or something, which is nothing to what you normally pay. And then on on the way back, we had the same amount of luggage. And then the guys in the Bangladeshi airport, they were like, "Well, that'll be nine thousand dollars in cash, please." We were like, "Um, "Well, for a start, we don't carry that amount of cash with us. No one warned us that we would have to pay." For this and we ended up having to leave the gear in Bangladesh and then someone from the office had to come out a week or two later and I think it cost them nearly seventeen thousand pounds in the end just to get the whole thing back. It was terrible. Jesus.
0: <laughs> I mean how much so and, and roughly how much gear is that? I mean I you know I travel a lot, but I'm going on Eurostar or going on an aeroplane with like four or five flight cases. How much gear are you carrying, roughly? <laughs>
4: I mean that would have, I think it, it would have been at least thirty cases probably if not more. I mean it kind of varies. I think the most I've ever done has been sixty or seventy, but um, that was for I can't remember what that was for. But
1: it, it's just crazy. I mean, you'd yeah. easily be taking a metric ton of kit with you. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I I usually tell my clients that we should turn up to a flight at least two hours beforehand. What? How long before flights are you turning up? Four, a day. Four hours.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah three uh, four hours
0: three four Look hours yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah yeah three hours is tight isn't it yeah, yeah it's tight yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Oh, oh there's all sorts of i mean it's that you know the classic where you'll and you'll have a tra- somebody thinks it's a good idea for you to you know move you know 40 pieces of camera equipment from from one terminal to another to make a connection that that you know is, is going to leave in 40 minutes or something yeah. you know with lots of like epic charges to try and make a flight and yeah i've missed a few flights that way and or you just get snagged up in customs and you know sometimes you can just breeze through and you just think oh yeah then this is how it should be all the time and it's a cracker as well and quite often you get asked if you can do a travel day rate <laughs> and travel oh, days are the most yeah. they're the most yeah. stressful
0: the longest it'll be we uh yeah it'll be
2: double
1: thank like, you yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Oh,
4: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do- double or fly me business please.
0: <laughs> yeah. But even flying business doesn't make up for if you get a RC customs guy who wants to see every single piece of kit on the carne
4: Yeah. And some countries don't really know what carnets are either and you're you're telling them how to fill the form out. It's quite funny. Yeah,
2: yeah it's like going to India. For years and years I was working in India and they were saying you know, carne carne and it's like but you're not a carne country you know, carne carne so you just give them a piece of paper and you can write it in biro as long as it said carne on the top of a piece of paper they were perfectly happy love a stamp in india crazy for it
0: you mentioned carnage and that sort of neatly moves us on to talking about the camera kit what was it like transitioning from film to tapeless
1: yeah i was thinking about the film days earlier and um it was tricky because we all had our own kit, and obviously there was that transition to make getting rid of it and moving on. But I, I was thinking about how I still actually have these anxiety dreams sometimes about being, um, on a shoot and I've just not brought a black changing bag with me and suddenly and and I've suddenly, people have just said, no, we're shooting on film. Didn't anyone tell you? And then I realised I haven't got, I haven't got a light meter and I'm then I'm filming. I'm just guessing what the exposure is because I haven't got a clue and um, all these things. And uh, I, I remember sort of doing a lot of canopy work with film and and, and trying to change those roles in a sweaty black yeah. bag, at, you know, speed because I've got, something I want to film just dancing around in front of me and then pu- pulling the core out of the middle and I don't know if anyone ever did that with a roll <laughs> and, uh, and then spend you know ages like stress getting more sweaty because I'm stressed and trying to get you know calm down and get it all back in the middle <laughs> it's just
2: it's yeah like, don't, don't miss that, don't miss
1: that. <laughs>
3: yeah. I don't I don't think film had much to recommend it in the natural world I mean you can sort of see the the vast improvement in the in the sort of sequences that are coming back since you moved over to tapeless, you know, and people are obviously, the downside is of people are generating ridiculous quantities of data that then the editor can never find, you know, the best stuff you did. But on the upside, you kind of, you know, you're never, as you say, running out of, you know, running out of film, you're never having to sort of be parsimonious with what you're shooting. You know, you can kind of, you review what you've got. You don't, you don't end up, you know, shooting the entire thing with the pellicle out of place and everything, you go back to, process the rushes in the UK and find out, you know, everything thing you shot was out of focus. Not that, that ever happened to me, but I know that's happened to other people. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything that was positive about shooting on film.
0: And, of course, the benefit is you don't have to carry the film stock and keep that away from x-ray machines. And digital cameras are much better in hot or cold, so that's one less thing to worry about, isn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> yes. I mean,
2: I, mean, you, I guess you, you sort of hope you've done your homework and you've got the right piece of kit for, for, for the job, you know, I think these days it gets increased for me anyway. It gets increasingly more frustrating where you know certain certain production companies or certain productions seem to have a bee in their bonnet about a certain camera. You know we've got to shoot it on this camera. Or yeah. um, whereas you know for me it's a bit like you know a camera really is just a tool for a certain job. And sometimes you need a hammer and sometimes you need a saw. You know you you pick the right camera for the right job, and hopefully that will get you through. Um, there are cameras that I would take to cold environments o- over others the same with, with with hot places but yeah hopefully fingers crossed if you've done your homework and and you've sort of spent time in those environments before then you'll have the right bit of kit you hope you're, you're, you're lucky to have the
3: choice I, I, I find almost everything is is on red i mean
2: yeah. particularly because the nhu have gone
3: all in with you know have bought endless you know red heliums and then most of the other production companies that are in the orbit of the Nhu kind of follow suit and almost all of them own reds and you to use them, which is fine. I think, you know, the red, particularly the new Gemini is, you know, fantastic camera, but it's definitely temperamental and not ideal.
4: Yeah,
3: very. Mm-hmm. in very cold places and in lots of other, you know, situations.
4: The fan is
3: very loud. <laughs> the fan is very loud, yeah. That's <laughs> the and, the
4: pre- yeah. and the pre-record is always... Like messing up—it's and it's a blessing and a curse. It really yeah, it's is. always
3: crashing the camera. That's the, because the most useful thing about that camera is that you know you can do a 30-second pre-record, which is yeah. amazing and obviously incredibly useful for you know, as we all know, for trying to catch you know behavior without burning gigabytes of data. But um, but yeah, the fact that it endlessly crashes the camera, having mm-hmm. it in pre-record, is like a massive, massive problem. It's <laughs> yeah. But it's the,
2: uh, I kind of I learned this quite quite secure recently. format. So that secure format makes a whole world of difference with the it, red
4: it, it doesn't always depends what cards you're using as well like uh, anyway i don't want to get too
2: in. <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean they are they certainly are they're, they're kind of glitchy they're they're interesting cameras to i mean i've been you know doing lots of stuff recently on a a, a macro based series for a, a streamer and uh, we've shot most of that on the the gemini and the helium and yeah, for certain things it, it's great, but I'm really tempted to get a, a t-shirt made up, actually, a black t-shirt with initializing written across the front of it, <laughs> because I just I think I seem to spend most of my my life watching that go across the monitor. Although actually, Michael, I took just the um, FX nine. Um, I actually timed from power on to record three seconds. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty impressive, huh? For, for certainly for natural history filmmakers, um, yeah. literally power on. To being able to go into record just a little over three seconds.
0: That's amazing, isn't wow. it? Yeah,
2: that's
0: really that yeah. So do you think the main reason for going red is the thirty second pre-record you mentioned?
4: I had a producer say to me that the reason they choose a red is because it's the producer's camera and it's it can do all these different things and shoot at eight K, seven K, six, five, four, whatever. But what I find funny is that the producer's not the one shooting on it. <laughs> no. <laughs> so. I, I will get asked, what camera would you like to use? I, I specify cameras and then and then I'll get, oh, well, we can't because we've only got a red. And then I'm like, well, why did you ask me in the first place? It, <laughs> it, just, it, it seems crazy. But I mean, yeah, I've just been told it's flexible for them. Uh, it gives them options to punch in, no, not that people seem to be doing that anymore anyway.
1: Well, there's yeah. not really, yeah, there's the resolution, isn't it? That's a big thing with it and the, and the modularity of the camera. Are the two big things in their favour. Which is mm. why I guess they're mm. being chosen above other cameras, and and the other some of the other companies haven't really kept up, have they?
2: I mean, they do seem to be more steady and reliable than they have been. I mean, the last sort of two or three shoots I've done have all been on red, and they've I don't think I've had the camera crash. I think generally, lots of cameras will pre-record now. One handy thing that the red does, which not many other cameras do, is it will pre-record off speed. So you can, you know, you can you can yeah. shoot a lot of natural history is, is, is filmed at variable frame rates, you know, slow motion. And you can actually combine that with a pre-record, which not many cameras will do. But, yeah, I think it's the modular nature that's made it really popular. And certainly with the Gemini, the, the whole dual ISO thing as well. If you're, if you're doing sort of macro sort of stuff or anything, low, you know, low light, that dual ISO is a real sort of game changer. Yeah,
4: the Panasonic's
2: got that as well, though. Yeah, I love
3: yeah. the l the yeah. great. I'd do that all the time if I could, but I never get the opportunity.
0: It does sound like, on the whole, none of you actually miss shooting on film.
2: I, I'm probably going to stand like a, a, a sad old shooter now, but I think there was something special about the discipline that film taught you, though. I've got you know countless friends now who are editors on big blue chip natural history series who just say that you know they can't physically watch the amount of, of footage that comes back from the field if they ran it through at three times the speed they wouldn't have enough time to, to look at half of it in the edit um, because so much is being shot because now we can keep going and going and going. Whereas, you know, when I used to hit the the, the button on a, on, a, on a film camera on my ARI, you would already rehearse that shot in your mind's eye and you would know what, exactly what you were trying to achieve and you would shoot for the, the sequence down to the, almost the last second because you had to because you just couldn't physically carry enough film to do it any other way. So I think shooting on film certainly taught me a a discipline that i hope i've carried through into you know video and now so you know tapeless and digital but i don't know maybe i'm just over romanticizing i I think that's right i think like if you've yeah i think that's
3: the perfect situation where you've like learned that discipline and then you can carry that over and you know and still hone your rushes so that the editor has has a chance of like finding the best stuff and seeing what you were trying to do that's the the best place to be. I just think, yeah, I'd still, if I had the choice of taking a camera now, I definitely wouldn't be taking an SR3. I would definitely be taking a, a yeah. to go out and shoot yeah, a sequence. So.
4: I also think it's sort of dependent on, um, who you're on a shoot with as well, because I've been on a few recently where I've been quite impressed with how the producers gone over all the shots, you know, logged them yes, that, yeah. that, that day, made a, a rough timeline and has said, right, we've got enough of that. We don't need any more. And I, I like that, I like someone to be that disciplined and, and, and tell me because otherwise you can be sort of flailing around in the dark a bit and, and, and you just keep going. But um, I think more and more of that needs to be done. And, and also having DITs on shoots is so, so useful, especially if it's like a multi-camera thing as well. You've got GoPros as well as a long lens and all of that, because otherwise it is a nightmare. I mean, our best shots end up getting missed sometimes and that's quite frustrating.
0: So, if you don't have a DIT, who manages the data on location? Because you must produce quite a lot of it.
4: I don't, I don't, I don't tend to do it. <laughs> well, yeah. I
3: mean, it's sometimes the producer will do it, but it again, it depends on on what kind of shoot you're on. I, I quite like to do it if it's, particularly on naturestry, because you don't tend to produce, you know, generate that much data, and I quite like to make sure that it's all done and not feel, you know, again, anxious about things not being properly. Um, transferred across and know that if there's something really important that we got that day to absolutely 100% make sure that it's down on the drives. Um, so I, I don't mind doing that. And and it doesn't
1: take that long if you're, you know, shooting a card a day or whatever, which is often the case in natural history.
0: Mm.
1: If, if it's just you, you and your camera, then it's one thing, but sometimes on shoots you've got maybe three or four different cameras going on, you start drowning in it after a while. Yeah, I mean, I've,
4: I've known producers or APs or researchers who, who might be doing second camera as well, and then after the day's wow. filming, they've then got to go back and download all this footage, and they're up until like two, three in the morning, and, and yeah. just do not think that's viable. And, I, and it's happened where people thought they've downloaded something, they've ended up losing it, and you know, that it's that tiredness and the sloppiness comes in, and it's no one's fault it's because they've been pushed too far and they're working too many hours. So that's, that's why I kind of bring up the, the DIT person or, or someone who is dedicated to do that and isn't doing it just at the end of the day. So
3: yeah. yeah, I totally agree with
0: that. Um, this is a fairly niche question, but what's been the difference of going from Super 16 to a large sensor when you're shooting long lens and you get such a reduced depth of field has that been a really big challenge?
2: It has got more challenging for sure, I think, yeah. Um, obviously, um, you know, the shallower the depth of field, the field, the, the trickier it gets. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I, I remember when we first went to larger chips and everybody said, oh, my word, oh, my word, it'll never work for natural history. But you, you just kind of get used to it, I think, and, and you you know, you adapt and, and with practice it becomes the new normal. I'm certainly finding my feet again with a large sensor on the, on the FX9 but you know every day i pick it up it seems a little bit easier so yeah i think it's it's just like everything really it's it's practice and it's muscle memory and you know your your hand eye coordination starts to sort of kick in and and it just becomes normal
3: i don't feel like it makes that much difference when you're on a long lens because the subject's very far away it's not yeah was obvious the the difference in depth of field i don't think it's sort of sort of technically that much more challenging but it's also the cameras are more sensitive now and if you shoot with the gemini you can get more stop you know i haven't noticed a huge difference going from two-thirds to super 35 really in terms of that aspect of it obviously there's other creative things that are, that are unleashed when you're you know you're filming stuff that's close so you're doing kind of more uh, creative work with animals up close or on the gimbal or whatever but you on know, long lens stuff i don't really notice a huge difference
0: you mentioned gimbals there and wildlife has always used specialist kit what's been the impact of equipment like gimbals and drones on your work
1: well that's the probably the biggest change from going from film to present day is just just the amount of kit you you need to be across mm. it's very difficult not to you can get i suppose you can get you can get yourself into a niche where you just do long lens for example but i think that's a harder and harder niche to preserve you do need to be jack of all trades really nowadays I don't know what others feel about that but I think it's very difficult to not be across gimbals or to be able to fly a drone and all that sort of thing on shoots I definitely
3: definitely like to use a gimbal because it it enables you to do so many more creative things I've I've tried to resist the drone thing because I just feel like it's a whole other bit of headspace and I I just I don't want to take all of that extra kit and that, that extra responsibility on I quite like it when a producer yeah. can fly or some or an assistant can come and fly the drone. So I've, I've, I've kind of held off on that so yeah. it's, not, it's not really hurt me, but although more jobs are coming in where they quite want someone to be able to do that as well. Um,
1: yeah, I think going forward, it's going to become more like that as well, that, you know, you um, harder to, to, to not sort of be able to do everything, really. <laughs>
0: yeah. Even without the specialist kit, you all get yourselves into some pretty tight corners. Justin was talking earlier about Filming in tree canopies, you must create some interesting quandaries for the health and safety department.
4: Um, I mean, everyone does risk assessments, don't they? It, no matter if it's nat hist or you, you get it in all genres, don't you? I mean, I, I've done, I've done shoots where I've been on my own, and you know, when I've sat down to think about it, I'm like, well, actually, that could have been quite dangerous. <laughs> you know, just e- even the simple thing of carrying kit from a car to a hide, you're going over a few hundred yards and. You know, if something were to happen, um, who's going to be there to help you out? <laughs> so um, it is it's certainly a, a
2: factor. We're always, hopefully, with a, with a team of people that have, have sort of got your back. You know, we're lucky that we do get to work with some, you know, some good experts and some good safety people. And, um, you know, Justine was mentioning Tim Fogg, the, the Rope Access Guy. I've worked with Tim a lot and he's just a legend. And, you know, people like him allow you to concentrate on, on, on capturing images and not have to worry so much about your own safety it can only be a good thing that it's now a more of a consideration I think back in to, to shoots that I've done you know at the beginning of my career which I just know would never have got through the got through the <laughs> system you know today I mean to the extent I think a year or so ago Maybe a little bit more. I, I, I was I was doing a shoot for Springwatch about um, about 10 minutes, 15 minutes from from my house from where I live um, in the forest of Dean, which has no very, very sporadic mobile phone reception. And they actually made me carry a satellite phone <laughs> because, you know, I, I was out of mobile phone connection, you know, 10 minutes from my house. Whereas, I, you know, I can think of, of shoots that I, I did early in my career where you would be off the, literally off the grid and you know out of communication range for weeks at a time so I, I guess a lot of that's changed with with the change in technology people have got a little bit fussier and a bit more concerned with with health and safety but um I guess it can only be a good thing
4: often it's the driving that's the worst anyway yeah I
2: mean, for sure yeah absolutely it's
4: the simple things it's not necessarily what your your work it's the actual driving to and from a place people are tired other road users you know as as trite as that sounds it's just that seems to be where the danger is more than anywhere
3: else so particularly on shoots in the states where you fly you know effectively long haul to the states and then you fly from some hub airport to a smaller airport and then you check the call sheet and find out you're supposed to be driving for four hours to the location and you've had a bottle of wine on the plane and it's kind of like yeah that aspect of it is very very it's definitely by far and away the most risky i think
1: Mm -mm. yeah or having people drive you who are just just don't know how good they are at driving, and they seem yeah. pretty crazy and overtaking unsafely, and you're thinking, "I'm going to die in this car."
4: Yeah, <laughs> it's different standards in different countries as well, isn't it? I mean, I was in Cameroon, and um, luckily the producer spotted it, but we're in we were about to get in this four by four hire car, and he looked at the tyres, and he was like, "No, mate, we're not getting in there. They're completely bald." So
1: <laughs> just yeah, yeah, it's all those things that you just need to be aware of. And also some of the risk assessments, so I mean, they just have to sort of make it work. And so, you know, you'll have things written like, you know, Justine is very good at running away from elephants, for example. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, what else can you say? Because, I mean, you know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're be in
1: this situation. Either we don't do it or we have to write something that's not really bulletproof. <laughs>
4: It's
1: a dynamic risk assessment, isn't it? Dynamic. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that's what you call it. <laughs> and I had to do a risk assessment just to do a camera test in my own back garden. Well, I didn't have to do the, risk, the production. I thought it was necessary to do a risk assessment. And uh, I thought that was taking things a bit far.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Ross on why, though, I could see their point.
1: <laughs> Got some pretty ferocious hedgehogs out here, I think. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Something I'm really keen to find out more about is what it's like working in a hide, especially for long periods of time. Do you get bored? I, I
2: personally quite enjoy it. I think there's a slightly um, I don't know whether, whether maybe I've got a screw loose or something, but I think I'm it's quite likely that I probably hold the the world record for hours in a hide um, at seven hundred and twenty hours in a, in a hide. Um, which is basically five five weeks in an eight in an eight foot by four foot wooden box.
0: That's the Siberian tigers you mentioned to me on the phone, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, it was. It was, it was uh, so yeah, it was. It was something that um, certainly for me w- was the sort of holy grail really, of, of wildlife filmmaking was to try and film Siberian tigers in in the wild. That was a pretty epic. Average temperatures of about minus minus twenty five, minus thirty. And and I just about had enough room to lie down uh, with a bucket at my feet, um, and that was it for five weeks. I got I got a day out once a week just to kind of um, resupply and 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 get fresh water. It was tough, but I actually quite enjoy that the the sort of solitude and the just being on your own but maybe that's maybe that's just me maybe I'm just a bit weird it's good training for for social yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) you were ahead of the curve there (laughs) maybe maybe yeah
0: so how much actual material did you get over those five weeks
2: oh well not very much I have to say so it was a sort of a double-edged sword really we had put out a lot of very sophisticated remote cameras in an area so we had that side of it sort of covered with some specially made 4k camera traps that we'd had built. Um, and then there was myself and another cameraman called Mark Smith, who was in a hide yeah. about, um, probably about three or four kilometers away from me in a different spot. Poor Mark. I mean, I mean, Mark sort of the, the, the legend who filmed the snow leopard for planet earth. So he's a very, very experienced, incredible, you know, talented cameraman and poor Mark sat in that box the same amount of time and didn't switch his camera on in in five weeks. He he saw absolutely nothing. Um, And I was very lucky. I, I saw, so the the first tiger I saw after about four days um, and she was so close to the hide, I couldn't actually switch the camera on Mm -hmm. Um, the, the production had had the idea that we were at that point, we were going to try and film raw. And it was quite early days of, of raw filming, especially with the um, Sony's F55. Um, and it, it, starting an F-55 with that raw recorder on the back was a bit like jump-starting a, a, yeah. a jet fighter. It was so noisy. <laughs> yeah. and, and also because of the cold, obviously, you're trying to preserve batteries. So,
0: and it so takes three everything. hours to come on anyway. It's to, like, yeah, exactly. Boot yeah. Up. So
2: I had everything switched off so that there's no way I could power the camera on with the tiger being so close to me because I just knew she'd spook and I'd never see her again probably. So I had to let her literally walk past the front of the hide without filming her. Um, and, and after my sort of heart rate had returned to something that was close to normal i tried to get some shots of her footprints in the snow and when i panned the camera down the, she was so close i couldn't actually pan the camera without hitting the window of the hide yeah. um so even if i had a tried I, w- I would never have got a shot um so that was about four days in um and then she came back again uh about a week or so maybe two weeks later but that was at night um so i heard her calling Um, And I could see where she'd sort of laid in the snow, sort of looking at the hide. But we we decided we wanted to shoot the whole sequence in daylight to match with the camera traps. So we had no I had no low light filming capability. So I couldn't film her then. Um, And then she came back again, I think, another 10 days after that. And I managed to get some shots. But I literally I mean, I got um, maybe three minutes of, of footage if I was lucky. It was incredibly incredibly fleeting and actually as it turned out the footage that we got from the camera traps that we put out uh, was pretty remarkable so pretty much the whole sequence in the end was made from camera trap footage but I mean for me just being able to you know to be able to look at that animal through the viewfinder and actually spend you know however little time it was with a wild Siberian tiger was for me the highlight of my career to be honest so
0: I just want to quickly pick up on a point you mentioned there you talked about seeing the tiger through the viewfinder but in my experience the viewfinder acts as a barrier it disconnects you a little bit from reality is there ever a temptation to take your eye off the viewfinder and sneak a peek at the natural world in all its beauty with your own eyes it's
1: tempting it is yeah but i keep
4: rolling it's funny because people say to me um Oh, isn't that amazing that what you've just seen, and and I kind of think well afterwards, I have to save that all that emotion up and and think about it afterwards, because if if I'm too emotional and excited while I'm filming it, then i'm I'm going to be distracted and I'm not not going to get the shot. So I think some people can think I'm a bit grumpy because i'm I'm just so concentrating <laughs> on stuff, but I think you've just got to keep filming, you cut you can't risk it because you may never get the chance again.
2: I think it's a huge bonus now having colour viewfinders. There must have been about sort of eight to ten years of my career where I saw the whole world in black and white through a black and white sort of video viewfinder. So at least now we do get to see the natural world, you know, in colour <laughs> at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, most of the time it is, certainly for me, it's it's through the viewfinder. Um, it's pretty rare that you have the luxury to look away.
1: It used to be a film. Um, I mean, it used to feel like you were actually looking at The reality, you know, with an optical viewfinder and
2: yeah. you know, color, that, that lovely flicker.
1: Yeah, yeah, it just felt more like you you were really looking with your own eyes, like looking through binoculars or something, you know. And so it was it was really difficult to go from that to a murky black and white electronic viewfinder, and and really you felt yeah definitely I felt a lot less um, intuitive with the, with the filming as well, you know. Just it's just difficult to feel like you're really there. And part of it, um, and so that yeah, that has advanced obviously <laughs> a lot since those <laughs> But um, yeah, it was a big leap from film um, for the view, from the viewfinder side of things.
0: So mentally, are you a bit like a sniper and sort of in the zone, controlling your heart rate and your breathing and everything? Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. I just think it's it's a, it's just a heightened state of almost constant anxiety just yeah. in a constant state of anxiety. And that when you when you see that moment of, you know, behaviour they've been waiting for and it's happening in front of you and it's backlit and it looks beautiful, there's a sort of briefest moment of elation when you think, I've got it, I'm getting it. And then almost immediately you're anxious. The anxiety kind of comes, kind of seeping back in and you start to, yeah. think, oh, am I running? Is it in focus?
4: Yeah, don't oh, mess <laughs> <messed> it up.
3: <laughs> yeah, I might mess it up in any way, you know, and you sort of, I think the, um, the only time when that kind of... That slight dread is, is dissipates when you can kind of... What you can do now, which you can never do with film, of course, is like... Really delete like, it. Well, not, yeah, not delete it. <laughs> never do that, of course. But, um, you know, go back and look and see that you've got something and you can check it in focus and you can feel you know confident that you can move on. and uh, Yeah, I think um, that's probably the the best, best bit.
0: But you must feel quite a lot of pressure then.
3: I think a lot of the anxiety comes from... A feeling a sort of heavy responsibility to the production team um and everyone who's been involved in getting you to that place, you know, because you're you're kind of like the point of the spear in a way. You know, like there's lots of there's a huge amount of work that goes on prior to you sort of sitting in that hide or being in that environment trying to to catch that particular piece of behaviour. Um and you know, you really feel like you're letting everybody down if you don't, you know, kind of do your job well. So yeah, there's um, yeah, I, I definitely feel the kind of heavy weight of that responsibility when I'm when I'm on location. It's best to
1: put out of your mind just how much it costs to get you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you just uh, it's, it's too much pressure, really.
0: Robin was talking about the tigers earlier on, and coming back with only a few minutes of material, but the sequence was saved with the the camera traps. Have any of you actually ever come back from one of those trips with nothing? And what does that feel like?
1: I've never come back with nothing. I've never had one of those shoots that completely fails. But I've come back with not enough for a sequence, which is pretty much the same thing, isn't it? Because you can't, then, you know, it's just not going to be used. Mm. Mm.
4: So if you're going for some key behaviour, and obviously you need to build the sequence up around that. I've just come back from filming vultures in Spain. And there's a particular bit of behavior which hasn't been filmed before, which we were set up in a hide to me and um actually the researcher was on the second camera. and we were waiting like eight, ten days in the hide for this particular bit of behavior and we and we didn't get it, but we filmed everything else around it. <laughs> it's just that the whole point of the sequence was this behavior so, you know, they, they've left some camera traps in place, but then everything obviously imploded with, with um, this virus. So I don't really know if anyone's gone to retrieve them yet. So we still don't know where we've got it.
0: Well, at least you know they're almost certainly still going to be there in a couple of months' yeah. time.
4: <laughs> yeah, de- dead batteries, but definitely there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so most memorable or conversely forgettable trip you know what was the highest high or the real mucky one where you were drenched to the core and up to your knees in animal poo i
2: wonder where that was going for a minute there
0: (laughs) Uh, i mean the one that made you questioned why you chose this as a career
1: oh i think anything involves um caves which either have a lot of bats or I did one memorably did one um, in Venezuela, which was filming oil birds that that, um, nest in in caves too. And um, it was just, we were just crawling around on our hands and knees in in poo, basically, and and there were lots of cockroaches and other bugs crawling around all over the place as well. And it really smelled. And um, that was quite tough. We just have to sort of hose each other down at the end of each filming session. Um, and um, I do actually quite avoid any jobs which involve bat caves these days. <laughs> God, sorry.
2: <laughs>
1: busy. i busy.
4: I think any shoots which are in um, really, really hot situations, I mean, really cold you can kind of deal with, but I've done shoots in Oman where it's been 50-plus degrees, and it's it's like nothing I've ever known. It, it's, it's a ridiculous heat and people say to me it's a dry heat you'll be fine it's like no it's 50 plus degrees this is crazy and then I've I've done where, where the humidity is like almost 100 and, and I've been sat in hides just literally melting waiting for something to happen and it's not turning up they're the kind of they're the tough ones for me.
1: I find it. it's the coldest tough ones for me when you're just sitting doing nothing, like hide work when it's really freezing cold, especially yeah. if it's then, you know, uh, night as well. So sitting in the dark, freezing cold, not moving, trying to stay awake, that can be really difficult. And I'd rather have the heat any day over that, I think. But it's just personal taste, that one, I think. Yeah. Maybe I've not had it cold enough. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't had to sit for long enough. I, I think
3: so uh, it's... <laughs> you know, you've, you've done a lot of chimps, haven't you, Justine? I, I found that completely unbearable i mean i don't know if, the the um uh, the fongoli chimps i don't know if you film them in senegal where they're like constantly on the move over there huge range and you're like you never ever got to get to stop you can sort of stop to film for like 10 minutes then you're up and you're on the move carrying all the kit You've got to stop film film stop move move keep going you know it's just endless all day never
1: down time yeah that is really yeah, sort
3: tough. of sweat bees all in your face <laughs> like being chased by um by honeybees you know when they disturb the nest i mean I, yeah i found that you know, on the edge of intolerable. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, it yeah.
3: Does, it definitely take sitting in a hide over that, I think.
1: I think that's one of the toughest things you can do is filming chimpanzees. Yeah. Physically tough. Because... Yeah. As you say, you, you, you never get to rest up really. It's not like um, I just recently did a, a shoot where we were filming orangutans, but we were, you know, we were filming them on foot. But um, they chill out. They sort of have a have a nap for a few hours, and you go, oh, well, let's, have, "Let's have lunch, shall we?" You know, not uh, more civilized. <laughs> yeah, you know, but you get some rest. But yeah, my memories of filming chimps is just yeah, just exhaustion because they just never they never stop, do they?
2: Well, I can definitely agree with, with Justine on, on bat caves. I'm not a fan of, I, I did a horrendous shoot in a bat cave in, in Borneo, which I ended up quite, well, <laughs> so it's all coming home to roost, so to speak, now. But I, I think I contracted a virus from, from bat feces or something, which yeah. um, affected the hearing in my left ear, bizarrely. So I, I kind of lost my hearing from that part of it. So I'm not a massive fan of bats. Like the Mantong cave. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah the yeah. huge bat mountain you have to yeah that's it basically yeah it is yeah Yeah. Yeah. and then also i do struggle with nighttime shoots in hot countries because i spent some time out in places where you're in sort of tented accommodation so you've got no air conditioning you're working all night uh, but you can't actually sleep during the day because it's like 50 degrees in the tent or whatever and you just melt um so i struggle a bit with with those shoots i've done a few of those just lack of sleep kind of gets me in the end but uh and also generally i think um i've never had any sort of major problems on location with wildlife but i have had a few places with people i've filmed in sierra leone after the the end of the civil war and that was very difficult working with very tricky local people and and volatile situations And, and the same in west papua and papua new guinea i've had some not particularly nice experiences with people, although the actual wildlife was amazing. So I'll, I'll take the wildlife over the local inhabitants quite often.
1: Mm-hmm. You're looking for some positive stories, now aren't you? <laughs>
0: no, but I, I mean it's great to hear that. I mean, it, you know, it it isn't all glamorous, though, is it? That's the thing. It's 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 lovely when, you know, you get the adulation of having got the shot that no one's ever got. The, before, but you know, for every time that happens, there's 50 times when something else has happened. It's gone completely wrong, or whatever. And it, it's, uh, I, I think you you learn as much from the negative as you do from the positive, don't you? Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah.
1: And I think, I think for for me, at least, the the, the highs are, are not like, oh, it was just one trip, which was a great high, but, but moments, you know, there's just a moment. And I can think of lots of them, you know, where it's just this point where you just go, oh, wow, you know, something happens that you don't expect. It was revelatory or what you've been hoping might happen. And it just happens perfectly and and there are other th- things even that you, you don't record, you know, you just see, you see something that's not even filmable, but it's just a magical moment. You just go, oh, I'll, I'll always remember that. I remember um, filming Gibbons and I was in the canopy from a tree platform and I, I just filmed these two. I didn't, I tried to film them, but they were just so far away. It was just two Gibbons that had just got together really because they didn't have any offspring. So I think they were quite a young couple and they were just flirting. I mean, you could clearly see they were flirting with each other and one was, offering the other one a fig fruit and then snatching it away at the last minute and going, no, you can't have it, you know, and and they were like tussling and and trying to peel each other's fingers off the branches and sort of so that they would, each one would fall a little bit. And and it was just magical, but it wasn't, you know, it's not something I could have shown on film. But it was still such a great moment for me, and I'll never forget that. For example,
3: I think I mentioned earlier, you know, when the um, I did a film, Batman: The Gorillas, it was one of my big break in, in the industry. <laughs> um, I was I went out as an as an assistant, and um, on the on the first trip, the cameraman Dave Allen, he didn't want to go up that day. He was not feeling well. I can't quite remember. So he said, "Oh, you know, do you want to just go and shoot it? You know, just for today, go and follow the group." And uh I was like, yeah, great, cool. So I, we went up, and, and we basically spent the whole time filming these gorillas, and you know, in the bright sun, in the horror, you know, the vegetation they're sort of basically big black lumps, you know. And there, it wasn't the cameras, and how much latitude in those days, so it was really quite challenging to film them. Um, but on the day that I went up, uh, they went all the way to the top of the volcano, which they basically never ever do. Uh, nice. This was basically the first day I'd ever filmed wildlife in my entire career. They went all the way up to the top of the volcano into the mist. And then they all went to the top of the cold air of the volcano and looked down into the lake in the crater of the volcano in this in this incredible misty environment.
0: Mm-hmm. I, was just,
3: I was just filming this. I was thinking that this, you know, it was an extraordinary experience. And then I went back with the footage and, you know, Dave was like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> but, um, but of course, like, you know, it was just luck, really. I mean, it was kind of an an incredible experience that is, you know, hugely meaningful for me because it was sort of the start of my career, as it were, but also very memorable as, a, as an image, but it um, also reminded me how everything is just serendipity. You know, like, you know, you can't always take credit for the amazing pieces of behaviour or the amazing footage that you see. You yeah. know, you can't, you're kind of gifted it by, by happening to be in that place and something kind of, you know, converging in front of you. In the same way that you can't, you don't, it's not always your fault if it doesn't work. But yeah, so in a way, that's the sort of the most, probably the most important shot or the most important sequence or, or thing that I've done because it, it kind of has kick-started, you know, the rest of my career.
0: That's a really remarkable way to start your career, though, isn't it? Um, but what about what's left to do? Is there anything you haven't filmed that you want to film?
1: The Yeti. <laughs> the Yeti. <laughs> I did have a moment um, years ago where I saw a um, just by chance it was up back up in the tropical canopy again and it was I'd gone up really early like I was every day before light um, and setting the camera up and I was expecting an orangutan to come into this tree because um, it had nested very close and I could hear some movement in in the tree I was I had a platform looking over onto a fig tree and then as the first light came, I saw it was a sun bear at the top of the tree with her cub. Wow. And um, it was just unbelievable. This bear just sort of walking around as if on the ground, but up, you know, 30 meters in the air on a on a branch. But um, I managed to get a shot before um, the orangutan that before this moment, I was excited <laughs> about the prospect of seeing, then came into the tree and scared her out. So she just went down, so rapidly um that i didn't i did you know I, I i got a shot so it wasn't usable and ever since then i always thought i'd love to i'd love to really have another chance to do that but i mean it's it's one of those almost impossible things mm. either you, you never see them in the wild you know they're really difficult so it's just that unfinished business i think you'd call mm. it
3: well yeah actually i have a similar thing to justine uh, thinking about it the um i was filming a uh, white-bellied seagulls and we had a hide up on the yeah. nest um on a, on a huge piece of scaffold it was quite a, a significant rig to get it up there and we, we had days and days and days of absolutely nothing happening in fact the the parents very rarely came back to the nest um, but I'd, I'd get into this hide you know before before sun up and then i'd have to wait there the entire day until you know until the sun went down nothing like uh, <laughs> the tigers but it was still quite challenging for me but the uh uh, and on one, I think after after a week of of this happening, with getting very little footage, the sun was just setting, and I'd used up all the batteries because you have to keep the camera in constant, you know, cash records, so using all the batteries. And I was pretty much about to leave the high to to come down the scaffold, and a huge troop of um langer monkeys came up to the nest, and I started trying to take the chick, or at least try to take some things from the from the nest, and the the adult eagles came in to attack the langer monkeys. It was incredible. Um, sort of chaotic scene with you know, amazing action and the uh, producer was watching from the car on his radio going, oh my God, this is incredible. I can't believe we're getting this. I, was like, <laughs> I had to go back on the radio and say, yeah, we're not getting it, I'm afraid. <laughs> 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 the camera's packed up and we haven't got any batteries. I'm literally, it was about to leave the uh, the hide. So the, um, when that kind of thing happens, it's really kind of painful. You know, you kind of think about that for a long time. I, I felt really bad for the producer we hadn't got this sort of amazing sequence and i you know i felt even years later you sort of think oh god i wish that could have somehow got that yeah. um so yeah i think yeah exactly unfinished business things you can go back and sort of redo and do justice to would be would be lovely to have that opportunity
0: yeah what about robin or sue
2: or oh, um well for me I, w- I would say probably um my last sort of big tick would be mountain gorillas i've never filmed mountain gorillas so i'd love i'd love to do that that would be that would be a, a dream come true and also, I think probably my sort of love for cold places. I, my last continent is Antarctica, so I've not been to Antarctica yet, and I'd, I'd love to get down there at some point. That would be sort of my last continent ticked. So I think, yeah, sort of two extremes really. But I could retire happy if I got both of those done.
4: Well, you've answered for me because <laughs> they're the two things that I, I'd love to film mountain gorillas as well, and also I've longed to go down to South Georgia. I'd love. Yeah,
2: to- yeah um so
1: same actually still my thunder there <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> let's you go have, together you'll have to work up a film idea together which yeah, yeah. those two things i don't know how you do <laughs> i roll them into <laughs> in one show but
0: <laughs> i want to thank you all for your time you've all been amazingly generous one final question you've obviously all got a real passion for wildlife is it a prerequisite for the job
1: i feel that um that if you don't have a base passion for wildlife it will be a very jo- very difficult job to do because it does require you know a lot of um, endeavor and um, and patience and you know being in uncomfortable situations and so on so it if you're not really into the into the nuance of animal behavior then um i think just being interested in the cameras and the tech would be uh, it be a harder career choice
2: <laughs> it would be really difficult to put ourselves through some of the Some of the things that we go through um, if we weren't ridiculously passionate about the natural world.
0: And that's where we leave it. I'd like to thank my guests, Justin Evans, Robin Smith, Simon de Glanville and Sue Gibson for some amazing stories and for giving up their time. Please do let me know what you think. You can find the podcast on Twitter or Facebook by searching for The Camera Channel Podcast, or you can leave a comment on the website, mjsanders.co.uk slash podcasts. On the next episode, you can hear my conversation with Ari's cine lens specialist, Art Adams. We talked about his background, his career as a DP, and of course, Ari's lineup of lenses. We also have a post-no-nab special coming up where myself and my guests will discuss the latest kit releases, Till then, thank you for listening. My name's Michael Sanders. Goodbye.